0: Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buker. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. This is On the Ball on the United WeCast Network, and I am Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Bucher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. And yes, if you detected that I might have been smiling on the brink of laughing as I recorded that first little bit uh, of this episode, it's because, man, it's been a minute. I've been missing in action again. At least podcast action. So when I say that there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, you haven't even been able to find me in one place like that, that you can find me talking about such things. So uh, look, it's a combination of uh, a number of things that have kept me away. My apologies. um, I had to attend a funeral. Uh, my daughter played in the ncaa tournament uh, and a friend's birthday bash in mexico which i took part in along with being part of a daily tv show which i'm still getting used to doing Uh, all those things have waylaid me kept me from being here but i'm back and i've got a lot of talk topics to catch up on as the nba season comes down to the wire now The race for playoff spots in the NBA right now is either so well defined or such a tangled ball of possibilities depending on which conference you're talking about and where in that conference you're talking that although I haven't recorded an episode in a while I'm going to put off doing anything on what to expect down the stretch or who I like making the postseason or any of that for a future podcast in this one I feel compelled to address the saga of ja morant and share what i know about the organization what i know about him and the interview that espn's jalen rose did with him as well as jalen's comments about the reaction to the interview now again apologies if this feels a little dated but with Jaw back and the Grizzlies rolling and what I believe is a lot of elements to that whole story still to be determined I think the conversation is relevant it's also less a look at Jaw specifically and the incidents that resulted in his 8 game suspension and more about how it was handled and how it reflects a bigger issue that the NBA has right now for those unaware Morant, the Grizzly superstar, had a recent string of events become public that made him appear to be as out of control off the court as he sometimes appears on it when he launches himself at the rim, collides with a defender, and then goes flying out of bounds. I think he knows exactly what he's doing, uh, no matter how acrobatic it might appear, until he gets contact. And then all bets are off. Now, there was an incident that occurred last summer, but just came to light that had him rolling to a Memphis mall last summer after his mom called him to complain about how an employee in one of the stores treated her. Morant and his crew allegedly threatened a security guard, and then a few days after that, Morant got into a scuffle with a teenager in a pickup game. Ja allegedly punched the kid in the jaw at least once after they threw the ball at each other, checking it up. And the kid alleges he also got punched by one of Ja's boys and then a dozen more times by Ja, who subsequently left and returned with a gun in his waistband. Then in January, Ja and company were in SUV and allegedly pointed a laser at members of the Indiana Pacers traveling party, with some believing the laser was attached to a gun the latest incident which led to jaw taking some time away from the game and ultimately being given an eight game suspension by the league had him dancing while flashing a gun on an instagram from a strip club in denver now i happened to be at the grizzlies first game after the incident in, Gen- in denver and jaw decided to step away it was in la against the clippers And I don't know if their VP of Communications was already on the trip when they went to Denver, but I didn't see her when the Grizzlies visited the Warriors in late January. While I did see the VP of Communications, I did not see their Senior Manager of Communications, who was with the Grizzlies when they were in the Bay all of which makes me think the team felt it necessary to switch switch out the regulars and bring in the big PR guns to handle the media after what happened in Denver with Jaw. Head coach Taylor Jenkins, in a pregame interview with the media, said about what you'd expect him to say. The organization was concerned about Jaw. They didn't condone the behavior. There was no timeline for his return, and so on. And what was notable is that the VP hovered over the proceedings, choosing who asked the questions for the most part. It was it was a very tense situation, and maybe that's understandable considering the circumstances. Uh, the reason I say that she chose, for the most part, uh, who would ask the questions is that I just jumped in and asked if the league or the Grizzlies made the decision Josh should step away from the team. Now, I generally don't participate in these press conferences because if I ask an insightful question and get an insightful answer, then I've shared it with everybody who I consider my competition. I I try to do these things one-on-one when I can or find some other way to ask the question of the people that can give me an answer. In this case, I didn't think that was gonna happen and I was just curious more than anything. Uh, Jenkins' answer was that it was done in conjunction with the league, which is kind of splitting the difference. The reason I asked is because I had been told the Grizzlies went to the league looking for direction on how how to handle the situation, that they were uncertain about what to do, which does not surprise me at all. Uh, It is a problem, though, and I would argue partly why the Grizzlies are who they are which as I see it is an extremely talented team a young team that constantly appears to be on the verge of spinning out of control and undermining themselves shooting themselves in the foot getting in their own way however you want to describe it because for as exacting as Jenkins is on how he wants his team to play and he is how demanding and commanding he can be as a head coach on the sideline and in huddles, how well he communicates with his players when they're on the court, how much respect they appear to have for him. No one appears to be setting the same sort of standard when it comes to being off the court. After Jenkins' interview, I walked into the Grizzlies' locker room. This is the day, again, this is right before the game, their first game without jaw after everything happened in Denver. And the music look, the music's, there's always music going on in the locker room for the most part. Depending on the makeup of the team, most guys will have it, they might have headphones on or it's generally loud enough for them to hear. But since it's usually more than one person playing some music, usually, they don't uh, trespass on each other's ear space, if you will. But that wasn't the case here. The music being played was so loud, it was impossible to have a conversation. You walked in and you felt like you were being assaulted. And as I said, playing music in the locker room is pretty routine. Now and then it get, can get pretty loud. But not to the point where it imposes itself on everyone and becomes a distraction. It was so loud, I'm pretty sure the coaches who were in an adjoining room with the door open had trouble communicating. And I don't think any of this was by accident. I took it as creating a barrier, a way to shut everyone out, a way to preclude anybody coming up to a player and asking any questions, presumably about Ja or where they were at or any of that. Um, But they were about to play a game. And I also can't imagine that it created an ideal working environment for the assistant coaches or the training staff or even the players. And that's why I'm not surprised by John ja Morant's actions or by Dylan Brooks being unable to keep himself in check and available. Those are the first two that come to mind. The players run this ship, and they are young players. Not a single one of them is over 30. Steven Adams is the gray beard at 29, currently out with an injury uh, after surgery. The next oldest player is Dylan Brooks, 27. Not exactly looking to him for what we think of as traditional veteran leadership. And... How many of these players have experienced what a title-contending team, an experienced team, a disciplined team, how it operates? Tyus Jones, who seems to be one of the more poised players, shall we say, on the Grizzlies, uh, was in Minnesota before he joined Memphis. Steven Adams, as I mentioned, he started his career with the Thunder and went to the conference finals with them twice, but I don't see him holding sway over Jaw and Dylan in particular. He is a pro's pro, but I've never known American players to fall in line behind a non-all-star foreign player. They're not going to listen to him just because he's the oldest and biggest dude on the team. That's not how NBA team hierarchies work. And the Grizzlies don't have any experienced front office leadership either. I'm not counting Glenn Grunwald, who's a senior advisor. I have not seen him around the team at all on the road at least Um, and so they don't have any experienced front-office leadership in the most empowered positions Tayshaun Prince is uh, vice president of basketball affairs former piston and Grizzly he's an executive and he knows what's up but I don't get the sense that he has a ton of authority I wouldn't worry about him talking to players or having him talk to players but I don't know that he's put in that position he's asked to do that or that the players even with his knowledge would look at him as somebody who has the gravitas uh, to keep them in line to be able to do something if they fall out of line Zach Kleiman is the president and GM he's been there eight years he's a former lawyer I don't know him But I'm fairly confident in saying that he hasn't spent a whole lot of time in NBA locker rooms or around NBA players prior to landing the job with the Grizzlies. Which means he doesn't know how to talk to players or speak their language. And the chances are he's somewhat intimidated or starstruck by them. That might sound extraordinary, but he wouldn't be alone by any stretch among front office executives who suffer from that who are afraid to talk to the players it sounds so strange i know but it's true and i one day i hope to get into the psychology of why that is i've got some guesses but it just amazes me how common it is taylor jenkins also doesn't have an extensive nba resume He's in his fourth season as the Grizzlies head coach, and this is his first NBA head coaching gig. His staff is either young or with limited NBA experience or both, and that I, I find that surprising. A, a coach of Taylor's rather limited experience generally has an old head on the staff. Uh, the organization, uh, organization overall is just primed for the players to determine how things are going to be done, especially in a small market, and especially with guys like like a John Morant, who have blown up to be bigger stars than the market could have ever imagined. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? That running things includes playing music at a deafening level in order to shut everyone out. And the problem with that is that that doesn't work when you're in the public eye. There's no hiding, especially if you're on an NBA team and you play 82 games and you're available to the media before and after every single game. You're visible almost every single day of the season. If you don't address issues or situations or you do so dishonestly or in a surfacey way you're going to pay consequences now experienced players experienced executives experienced coaches they understand all of that so they address the media and thereby provide the best narrative that they can they are proactive they set the terms they make a statement without even being asked a question if they know it's a hot button top topic if they know they're going to have to address the job rant situation they don't wait for a question they let you know what the situation is how they're addressing it and then when there are questions asked they have the choice of saying i've already answered that uh, do you have anything else I've said all I've said, all I'm going to say about that particular situation at this given time. Do you have any other questions? And you're not dodging, you're not avoiding, but you're taking control of the situation. As I said, the experienced people in the league, they understand that. They answer tough questions because otherwise someone else will for them or the media will find other answers. Look at Andrew Wiggins and him being away from the team and some of the rumors, the vicious rumors that came up. Those weren't media driven. Those were just random people out there floating it out into the universe. But that's what you, that's the risk you run with social media today is doesn't have to be a reporter. Doesn't that's, this is the loss of mainstream media in that it used to be that any information that was being put out there was being vetted. Now, now, it's not. It can come from anywhere, and then the mainstream media, the remaining parts of the mainstream media, have to react to all those various rumors or innuendos if, uh, unless they want to look like they're out of touch. And the problem is, is that once mainstream media re- responds to it, it gives it a certain level of authenticity or reality, even if the mainstream media is knocking down whatever that rumor might be. So, there's no hiding when you're in the public eye the way you are for an NBA player. Uh, and it's why I wasn't impressed with how the Grizzlies have handled this situation at all, including Ja's interview with Jalen Rose on ESPN. And let's be clear, not that I expected to be impressed, or that I even expected it to come off as sincere. And that's not a knock on Jalen, or actually on Ja. Ja, I would suspect, was just doing what he had been coached to do, whether it was by the VP or someone else. A player, very few players, are going to be sincere and vulnerable unless someone explains to them the importance of doing and being that. Very few people are inclined to do that by their own volition. Players are no different. Not when it comes to addressing something that is embarrassing or regretful to millions of people. I didn't expect an insightful interview because, in part, I've done a few of these sit-downs when an athlete is looking to rehab their image or give their side of the story. The one I remember doing most distinctly was with Dwight Howard when he was with the Lakers. Now, there's a whole lot of negotiation that goes on just to get the athlete into the chair. Topics and questions are vetted by a host of people on the player's side of the equation. There are no doubt conversations that even I, uh, the, me, the interviewer, is not aware of. Because the interviewer is usually handpicked by the agent or the player to do the in- interview because of a friendly relationship. But then these things usually go up the ladder. And there are people in higher positions who are having other negotiations along the way with, say, a broadcast partner. That's what I was doing at the time with ESPN, broadcast partner talking to the NBA. Adam Silver and John Skipper, who I think was in charge at the time, no doubt would have a conversation, however fleetingly, about me doing an interview with Dwight Howard. In this case, the relationship was with me and the late Dan Fagan, Dwight's agent. Now, Dwight, Dwight and I had actually had a few mild disputes over the years, actually appeared in a documentary that he did, so we, we had patched it up, but our history and people knowing about our history, at least in the media, gave the interview more authenticity. Uh, I don't think that would ever happen today. Teams and agents see such opportunities as carrots, rewards for other services rendered. And Dan knew that I was willing to listen to whatever he was saying about a client, but that I was not going to present it the way he wanted. I wasn't going to do his work for him. And I know that he has that relationship or, excuse me, had that relationship with other people in the media. Our relationship was strong enough, had been long enough, where he understood I I was not going to operate that way, and yet he was still going to give me opportunities, no doubt no doubt because I worked for ESPN Uh, in any case teams and agents see particularly today when they're handing out or setting up uh, an interview for an outlet and for a particular reporter it's a carrot rewards for other services rendered and the interviewers go into it knowing that and as far as I can tell are comfortable with those terms I could never be. There is the art of negotiation, and then there's capitulation. And I've never been willing to give up my autonomy for an interview or access. I'm not saying, who knows, that may not be the way to play the game today because it is all about content and access. I just choose not to play it. I'm going to find another way. Now, if I know all of that... I'm sure Jalen does too, which is why I find it so odd that he decided to defend the interview the way he did. The interview didn't resonate with anyone. Media, fans, everybody saw it as a puff piece, as a piece of PR for Ja Morant, which is what made Jalen's defense or the the defense he decided to put up, so weird. And and that was to accuse his critics of being jealous that he got the interview. Now, I didn't publicly criticize the interview, and maybe my comments in this podcast could be or will be taken as such, but these are the first comments I've made on the subject publicly. Um, But I highly doubt anyone was motivated to bag on the interview out of jealousy. I could only see that arising if Ja had actually said something, or if Jalen had asked a particularly deftly constructed question that someone else had also thought of asking. Or Jalen did something that got Ja to open up or posed a question off something Ja said that unearthed some special insight into the situation or Ja. But none of that happened. And I don't blame Jalen for it. As I said, these interviews are so pre-planned that anyone who simply makes it look like a conversation and not a scripted performance is doing some admirable work. But from a technical sense, Jalen screwed up right out of the gate by posing two different questions. We call it double barreling and giving Ja a tongue bath before even asking the first one. Telling him he's a 23-year-old superstar and face of the league right off the bat, considering the subject, considering the reason for the interview, is quite simply pandering. Ja doesn't need to be reminded of that, and we, the the viewers, don't either. And Jalen has already earned his place in the seat to interview Ja. So there's no need To butter him up at this point let's just get to work but then he asked what have the last 10 11 days been like and before Ja could answer added and how are you doing now keep in mind jalen had days to prepare for this interview and yet right out of the gate he committed a cardinal sin as far as interviewing goes because generally when you give two questions the interviewee is always going to pick the easiest one. What the last 10, 11 days have been like is far more interesting and challenging to answer than how are you doing. So, Ja answered the second one. We never heard the answer to the first one. He didn't have to give it. Just to be clear, a good interview would have asked If Ja was going to continue with whatever counseling he received in Florida, or if he thought that five days of counseling was enough, a good interview would have followed up with his statement about having to learn how to deal with pressure and stress in a healthier way, how long he had been feeling that pressure and what was creating it. Now, again, I fully understand if Jalen wasn't given the opportunity to approach the interview that way, but with all the experience he reminded everyone that he has working in the media, I would hope that he would know that it wasn't a good interview for either him or Ja. Because I have no reason to believe that Ja learned any more from what happened than he can't wave a gun around in a strip club. He can't punch a kid playing pickup. He can't threaten a security cop at the mall. And the Grizzlies didn't address those other incidents when they happened, quite apparently, and have not talked about addressing them now that they've become public. So why should I believe that Ja learned anything more, again, that he can't threaten mall cops or punch kids on the playground? So he's learned, at best, what not to do. But that's only one part of the equation. The second, perhaps most important, is understanding what he needs to do to avoid other forms of conflict, to protect himself, what he needs to change proactively. And that, from my experience, doesn't happen after five days of counseling. That takes a lot of hard looks at how am I living my life? Who do I have around me? What are my habits? And what places do I frequent? And it certainly doesn't happen by the grizzlies simply not staying overnight in cities that might offer more temptation than others. You take something away from an addict. And I'm not suggesting that Ja's an addict. I'm just saying in any case, you take something away that someone desperately wants. They're going to find a way to get it. You're not curing them. You're just depriving them. And the second they can get access to it, they will rather than learning how to live without that thing. Now, there's a lot about Jah that makes me believe he'd be open to making changes if someone simply had the guts to tell him point blank what changes he needed to make, how to make them, and held him to making those changes. A player doesn't navigate the path he has navigated to get to the NBA. That's where my belief comes from. He doesn't hail from a big city. He didn't play for a big-time AAU team. He was lightly recruited out of high school, and he wound up at Murray State. A player only follows that path to the NBA by being coachable and adaptable. My guess is the challenge he's going to face is that his dad who played at Claflin, a Division II school in South Carolina, was his coach coming up, and from what executives told me, T. Morant, his dad's name, is part of the problem now. His mom was also an accomplished point guard. I'm sure she had some influence on who he is as a player. She's the one who called him and had him come to the mall. What are you doing calling your son your all-star, face-of-the-franchise son, to resolve your problems with someone at the mall. You have to be kidding me. And you've surely seen T courtside, drink in hand, hanging with celebrities, and cheesing for the cameras. Now, ask yourself how many other parents of superstar players in the NBA do you see sitting courtside as often as you've seen T. I can't recall one. You see them now and then. Maybe this is just me, but the ones that I uh, admire the most are the ones that aren't sitting courtside, that sit up in the stands, still have really great seats, sitting in a place where their sons or daughters can see them, but trying to be at least somewhat inconspicuous. The cameras, no doubt, are still going to find them, but they're not making a point of putting themselves out front. Because they realize they're not the show. They're not part of the show. They, they honestly don't want to be part of the show. This is their son's or daughter's show. Now, merely suggesting that a black father's presence might not be a positive immediately hits a nerve with a lot of people who believe that a black father who decides to be present should be uniformly lauded for that decision because not enough do, no matter how that black father decides to make his presence felt, and I'm sorry, but you're never going to get me to accept setting the bar that low. I have too much respect for the black fathers who do it right. I'm not going to set the bar so low that anybody who's simply showing up gets credit as being a good father. Sorry, or that I'm going to believe that mere presence outweighs setting a bad example. And I'm not saying T is setting a bad example. I don't know him or his relationship with Ja well enough to say that. But I can tell you that executives in the league believe that he's not setting the best of examples because they have seen it and experienced it. What I do know is that Ja's talent and personality are a dynamic combination his story that makes uh, is one that makes him easy to root for as well I was one of the first to say from the very beginning that I thought the Ja was going to have the better career than Zion Williamson he would have been my number one pick was looked at as crazy at the time I believe that I've been proved right I couldn't have anticipated the injuries that Zion has had, although I thought that that was a very real possibility. I just thought position-wise, the way Ja has come up, I was all good with Ja Morant being my number one pick, particularly that position uh, and his, his ability, his leadership. Now, the personality, the talent, the story, all of that doesn't guarantee anything. He strikes me as a young man who is willing to be coached, to listen to reason, to adapt. He also, as of right now, looks like a young man who is not being given any of that at the NBA level, at a time when he's being more empowered than he ever has. And if he doesn't know exactly how to utilize all that, I'm not going to put that entirely on him. Because someone is going to have to challenge him to do all that. And as of right now, I don't know who that is. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, I'm thinking I'm going to dive into the MVP race because I've had to talk about it a lot of late, and I've thought about it somewhat And I have to fill out my ballot here in the next week or so. And I think I know which way I'm going, but I thought I'd share with you guys what my thought process is and how I view it as of right now because there's been a lot of conversation about it with players not showing up to play other players and the whole debate behind Jokic, Nikola Jokic potentially winning it three times in a row. Uh, That feels like decent fodder to get into. So plan on making that the next podcast. And I assure you that that next episode will come out sooner. (laughs) There will be less time between that one and this one than there was between this one and the previous one. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.